He loves her, and she loves him, and they love they, and it loves it, and other combinations. In honor of Z for Zachariah, what's your favorite genre-tinged romance? I'm Matt Patches, and I'm going to go with uh, John Carpenter's Starman, because, I don't know, aliens falling in love with humans, it's, it's a beautiful thing, the coming together of worlds. It's me, Dave with the Seven, and because I've read it, I'm going to go with the first draft of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, which has pneumatic people mover tubes and a super downer ending set way in the future. Huh. Interesting. I am <laughs> David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with Chris Marker's La Jetée, because there's a lot of a heck of a lot of truth in that, as Josh. For some reason, I say. don't remember the romance there. What is the romance of that? He of falls in love with a girl, and... The, uh, her eyes move. I only remember the time travel part. Mm. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fighting in the War Room. This is Fighting in the War Room number 84 for Tuesday, August 25th, the year of our time, Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. Gotta say wow. it, Katie. Katie, you know? how deep your voice has gotten. Hello, I'm Katie Rich. Uh, no, we are here with a new episode, and before we get to business, and there is tons of business to take care of. Yes, first, Katie's not here. Uh, she is She's on, on another vacation. vacation. It's like another- her eighth vacation what is happening what what are we doing wrong the We're too only busy vacation seeing movies. i know stars ed helms but <laughs> it is a nightmare it's a goddamn nightmare but katie yes. is uh, living the dream katie's off to wally world with her new family yeah. uh making it happen uh and we're here talking about movies and culture and Did such you just start uh, katie rich pregnancy rumors <laughs> no i actually started secret family rumors okay, we're jumping okay. straight to uh Extended family. Anyway, before we get to business, we have a few reviews. And, David, you're going to read them, apparently. I and am. They we don't have... do much to me. They're, they're not very kind to me. No, I, don't... I haven't read either of them, although the first one by mmurf 71 is very short, although they're still very much appreciated. It says, love it. Great set of shows all in one place. Smart, funny, bright host. I, uh, single host singular? You may hey, be that's got to be me. Chances are that's me. Chances Thanks, everybody. Um, and the other one, which uh, I will be experiencing live with everyone reading this in real time, uh, by Holland852, says, like Seinfeld, but even more New York. Oh, wow. Uh, let me break down the foursome. Dave Seven seems a little bit more obsessive and niche as a podcast personality. He and I don't have a ton of crossover interests, but his way of looking at media and pop culture is fascinating. I'm always impressed with the scientific, almost mathematic style of breaking down big Hollywood machinations. Katie provides the bulk of the humor, sincerity, and structure that this podcast so desperately needs for balance. She also appears to bring the best topic of discussion that sparks the most interesting and heated debates. Patches is essentially the Emperor Palpatine. <laughs> Darth Vader is the bad guy. The real villain rears his evil head the moment you let your guard down. Much like the Emperor, Matt Patches uses sarcasm. Was the Emperor sarcastic? <laughs> yes, he was constantly like, yeah, Darth, good yeah. job. <laughs> he uses sarcasm, fear, and decrepit. Oh, deceit, sorry. My eyes are failing. And deceit. And decrepit. De- He is decrepit, though, to try and win over others to his bizarre, seemingly random assessment of films. Every good story needs a good villain, though. Add spice to the dish. 
David Ehrlich initially appeared to be the villain of this podcast, but over time, and possibly through Stockholm Syndrome, I've grown to love him as a critic. His viewpoint might seem abrasive, but it is usually correct, but not always. In parentheses, Godzilla was an awful movie, and you should all feel bad. I find oh. it amusing how the other three hosts seem to crave his approval of their movie picks. I haven't noticed that, but interesting. This, this is the real <laughs> thing I'm going to have to disagree with. Like the children last wanting thing their I dad this to say, good job, son slash daughter. I'm proud of you. His opinions hold a lot of weight with them, and I'm finding they hold a lot of weight with me, which yeah. is the sign of a reliable critic. Together, sure these four do, hosts. <laughs> together, this is a sponsored review. Together, these four hosts from, form the perfect balance of personalities to deliver a dynamic, intelligent, and youthful – that's the best word of this entire review uh, – approach to film assessment that I find myself starved for in my day-to-day life. Thanks for all the great discussions. David, please keep drinking before you do the podcast, but please talk into the mic so I can actually hear you well holland 852 we've had some mic related issues uh i think we may have found a stopgap solution and the new part is on the way from my microphone so hopefully the audio woes are a thing of the past your your opinions will come in clearer than ever thank mm. god so that we can bow down upon them we need them to reaffirm <laughs> our opinions <laughs> yes so how do i know what to think anyway. i will tell you young thank badges. you for everyone who submitted reviews everyone else please Please jump on iTunes and, and show us some love or show us some hate or show us some short poetry like the first review. Anything goes. And it'll be great, right? Just like sarcastic Emperor Palpatine. Patches week. Picked all the topics himself. This weekend, uh, I did something that probably most of our, our listeners do on a regular basis, but because I live in New York and I have no money, I rarely do this. I drove around in a car. Uh, I rented a car and drove around in upstate New York and had a merry old time bouncing from uh, Verdant location to Verdant location. I'm actually looking for a wedding location, so if you have one upstate New York, let me know. But uh, I really enjoyed driving in a car because – I like blasting the radio and putting down the windows and enjoying uh, that experience, listening to music. It's the best place to listen to pop music, and it's the best way to just see what people are forced to listen to time and time again. Because really, the radio stations are playing, what, like eight songs uh, on rotation? I mean, it was miserable. I think the weekend came – or yeah, the weekend came up. Different radio stations, same exact song, three different times over three different stations. It's so strange. I just think but, it's worth underlining uh, what you were saying about the car being the best place to blare pop music uh, or really any kind of loud music that you enjoy. Are you, are I think, you agreeing with that assessment? I, I'm or? totally agreeing with that. I think that uh, giant headphones, which are my default headphones, are a close second. But uh, I think the car, if my teenage years had taught me anything, sure. or my Jetta came with uh, the finest sound system that I think I've ever had, uh, that was the way to do it. 
And of course, tis the season for debates about what the song of the summer might be. I'm still I'm still saying that it's it's bad blood. It's it's Taylor Swift all the way mm. from the beginning. I mean, I think her that uh, uh, that song actually emerged probably in March and then got the Kendrick Lamar rap over it and it became the song of the summer slow evolution but i am sticking with it but now this this weekend i was listening to carly ray jebson's new album emoticon or emotion emoticon <laughs> no i think there's actually is there a song called emoticon on it? There no there's be, a song called, called emotion, emotion. well it should be called know, emoticon the album its title but again, it was just a smile. I had an emoticon on my face when I was listening to it. It's just a very fun little 80s synthy album. It's a nice throwback. Maybe not as good as Taylor Swift's 1989, but it's fun. It's fun. Um, I don't know if it's great music, whatever that non-objective term really means. I mean, it's not uh, substantial. It's very fluffy. Uh, it's what we look to for summer entertainment. Um, but it got me thinking about the movies that we see during the summer. And, you know, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about them and how they're not substantial and how they're not bringing anything to the table and how they're the same old recycled garbage over and over again. Um, and we, and that creates difficulty for us. We don't like seeing this repetition, this homogeny that runs rampant in Hollywood and in our multiplexes. And yet, it's what gives the backbone to these albums, to these pop albums. And we want to hear that same old stuff. And we want to hear those familiar beats and we want to hear something that we can just – we already know how to sing the song the first time it comes on the radio. And we want to put down the windows in our car and we want to sing it. So why, why can we stomach pop music more than we can pop movies, I suppose? I mean, it's, first of all, I'm not sure you completely characterize that we don't love just getting the same thing over and over again in like the same iterations because I think that there are you know certain swaths of the population that do. Like you can't look at Jurassic World and say that it's a different movie from the other Jurassic Parks like before it, right? Like we're just I'm getting definitely it. not saying that, <laughs> but I'm- like. It's like also I you know every time I hear like can't feel my face by the weekend I can't feel my sorry right Go no on. it gets stuck That's in your song. head oh my god but it's every like channel. yeah it's like that uh, there's nothing in that song that doesn't sound like something of the past five years like rejumbled into a new song but that doesn't mean I'm gonna hold it against it because like everything summer and pop those two things seem transitory when they're put together. Um, and then we kind of forget about it, like, uh, I guess, like childbirthing pains. We forget about it until we get, like, we get to tinge it with nostalgia and being like, I remember when Holla Back Girl was big, but you sort of forget, like, the six months where it was mm-hmm. fading out of uh, existence. I forgot how much we all knew about childbirthing pains. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's a, from what I hear, they are horrible, but there's a yes. chemical that is released that makes you forget them. Uh, while they're happening. Yeah, and I think it's it's not worth... I mean, it's worth pointing out that uh, while uh, like Carly Rae Jepsen's album, the songs are mathematically you know, formulated for maximum impact and that pop song structure is very simple, you know, with first chorus, verse, And they're chorus, throwing back bridge. to the 80s, which is our, our latest trend in movies. Right, yeah, no. So, I mean, I think that, like... But, but at the same time... Um, mathematics though it may be there is a little bit of an element of wizardry involved in the first let's say the first track off the new carly ray jepson album which uh the few times i've listened through it is is far and away the standout um and that you know i think there's a certain alchemy there where uh it's homogenous but she brings something unique to the table 
Um, and of course, to a certain extent, you know, they share a lot of songwriters and a lot of these people are not auteurs as we would define them because they, oh, maybe they are. I mean, maybe it actually is more of a analogy than you might think because, uh, you know, even an auteur filmmaker, even someone who's been in the news recently, like Quentin Tarantino, uh, does not do everything by himself or anything by himself. He has quite a, uh, a team right. that he relies on, and as all of these people do, a Taylor Swift album is the result of dozens, if not hundreds, of people working together. Uh, but there is only one Taylor Swift, and uh, the pop songs that she delivers are going to be different than anyone else's. Until recently, they weren't even pop, and so it's like there is there is a, an element of. But maybe you're. I mean, there. you're specifically honing in on Taylor Swift, and maybe that's what makes that album right so fun because it doesn't just sound like we're running this through auto tune. We got a bunch of songwriters to do all the chords that we need to make the perfect pop song. It, it is the standout is the mad is, is Taylor Swift's 1989, the mad max of this summer. Well, uh, maybe but like the thing is that there's no, um, it, she wrote the songs, right? That's actually, she has a writing key. credit on all yeah. the songs. I yeah. think, but like they add with like an album, like 1989, you know, gets like this, uh, every couple of months, a new single gets like the big right. push. Much like, you know, Mad Max tore up theaters and then sort of like went away and is now resurging because we're hitting the VOD Blu-ray second run, which oh, is I think if only, you know, and of course it'll be on first it was in theaters and then it was in uh, second run theaters and hotel TV. And now it's, you know, then it's on the torrent sites and then it's on, uh, you know, now it's streaming and Blu-ray, et cetera, et cetera. And then soon it'll be on cable. I think there there is truth to that. Uh, but movies would kill to have the lifespan. I mean, pretty much all musicians would kill to have the lifespan that Taylor Swift's 1989 album has had. It came out a year ago, and they still have new singles. It's insane. Right. Well, I mean, it's the same uh, thing that she did with you know Red, Red before it, where she was like pimping that for two years, but there was still like a new single every like three months. But I'm not sure like how is that really different from marketing a movie like Long Lead? I guess that there's actually a product that you could buy. With right, you're you're yeah. enjoying it on the level it's meant to be enjoyed on. You're teasing it out, but remix culture and, and you know, adding Kendrick Lamar to Bad Blood, you have two different entities, and you, and you can kind of find one okay and then really enjoy the second version. Right, and of course, listening to, um, listening to a great pop song is a much less cerebral, more physiological and immediate pleasure than... Uh, tapping into and really enjoying the full pleasure of a great pop movie. You you don't need the context of the album around that song to enjoy it. It's a blast it on the. If you're listening to the radio, you never get that context. Uh, whereas, let's say you love the I mean, last thirty minutes think, of the Avengers, think, like you you, it's not really pleasurable to the same extent if you're not seeing the movie around it. I mean, I think that the the summer movies that we've lauded, Mad Max being one, but kind of these singular visions are mirror a great pop song. They go from point A to point B to point C with complete clarity and strong voice. And I mean, that's what makes these pop songs so enjoyable. Even when they're manufactured, there is raw talent. You know, I was watching, uh, videos of, Oh God, who is like Kelly Clarkson who has kind of like faded from the main scene and she's went off and had a family and you know, she's, she's just 
I, I oh, it was just so atrocious. I was listening to the radio, and this one DJ was wondering like why Kelly Clarkson was bigger, and he also mentioned that she was having a baby, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, that's the reason. Like, what what is the judgment here? And it doesn't matter. Like, people can judge her obnoxiously in so many ways, but you know what? At the end of the day, she's still going to go viral every time she sings that covers a song in her show because she has raw talent and. I don't. And, I'm not sure actors, I necessarily understand the connection between. Well, I'm what saying, you're saying that about she Kelly can Clarkson. prevail. She can prevail in a way that actors and actresses can't with their performances, or, or that directors can't in their movies. I'm saying that there's too much to involve. There's too many factors in a movie that you can't enjoy it on such a singular level as mm, I wouldn't say a per- song. I wouldn't say prevail. I would say maybe persevere. If we're gonna stick in the p words, but it's like. Uh, but she's not going to have her I Want American Idol like numbers ever again. Well, something that's a really interesting uh, thing to bring fluctuate. up in the context yeah. of this argument is, or the context of this conversation is the new movie We Are Your Friends, which is, you know, it's about Zac Efron. He is an aspiring DJ, but the movie is, in broad strokes at least, structured like a pop song. They're very clear about this. I mean, he, like they talk about... Jazz, anyone who's seen the trailer has seen that part where he talks about bringing the audience up to 128 BPMs very slowly and getting them exactly where you want them and playing them. And, and the movie, uh, not you know perfectly, but it, again, in broad strokes, tries to replicate that feeling uh, over the course of a 100-minute narrative. And um, I think it actually provides a really interesting case study as to what – the differences, the, the various pleasures that, that are provided by a pop song uh, and a very silly pop movie that I happen to enjoy quite a bit uh, and takes it to another level when in the climax to make something real, he uh, mixes in and samples all of these sounds that he's collected from his own life, of course. Um, but it's, uh, uh, yeah, but it's payoff. Uh, it's musical payoff. It's yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Special. He's yeah. sampling the girl saying something about how much she loves being at this music awesome. festival over the loudspeakers. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, but there's oh, definitely like a narrative kick to it. That's what we but, should have done for this segment was movies that operate like songs from like the decade that they were in. That's complicated. No, <laughs> but you just, you just did it. You just explained it. <laughs> Uh, but, what are your other examples? Well, yeah. I mean, like, I, like I was thinking, like New Jack City is probably like early '90s hip hop mm. as much as that's an early '90s movie, like in its excesses and in its sort of like tinny production. Oh, I would like to see a movie that's structured like because you know Patches was saying that Mad Max and the successful blockbusters of the summer are stru- structured with the clarity of a pop song, and I mean a pop song as long as you pay a modicum of attention can make you feel like a genius because you know exactly where all the pieces fit intuitively. Uh, and I think you see something like Mad Max with its very laid out geography. It's really easy to understand. Um, and maybe this was a problem that people had with uh, the Age of Ultron, um, which was more well, like Dvorak I, than anything else. But. I, I think there's something to learn from how pop songs operate and how movies can operate like them because when Straight Outta Compton has so much to tell about the history of black people in 
Compton in California and all over the world and how that movie seems to kind of dip its toe into relevancy at times. And then I watch something like the video for Kendrick Lamar's All Right, uh, six minutes long, and just perfectly distills everything that's going on using relevant iconography, but also kind of fantasy and just, uh, you know, just strong imagery. I'm just like, why can't a movie do what this music video does? Especially when we always kind of jab movies for doing, for being like music videos at times. I don't know. It's something to consider. But uh, <laughs> just, to ra- just to wrap up, um, I wanted to mention the song from Furious 7, the uh, See You Again. Yeah. Which is, um, it that is was a the big movie. song this summer. Like that song is the movie and they're both <laughs> both just flat and obnoxious. And I mean, See You Again is always on the radio too. It is Charlie My Puth. Heart Will Go On for Charlie Men. Charlie Puth. <laughs> yes, Wiz Khalifa featuring Charlie Puth. And again, that's straight down the middle and so is the movie. And I just – I see them kind of intertwine. I think we should end this segment by forcing our listeners and the country as a whole through them to acknowledge the fact that Furious 7 is like at best – a fine movie. <laughs> I thought it was the best of the series. And you know what? The song's pretty good, too. So maybe, maybe they're on to something. More songs and more furious. How can we not talk about family when family's all that we got? Everything I would do, you were standing there by my side. And now you're going to be with me for the last ride. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. See you again. We've come a long way, yeah, we came a long way. from where we began. You know, we oh, I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. Tell you. When I see you again. For my next segment, Baked in 100 Degree Weather and Totally all over the place. I'm a nightmare tonight. I'm sorry, everybody. But I want to talk about a movie called American Ultra that came out last weekend that no one saw and that critics kind of bashed. Uh, I wish I had For 20 seen it. seconds, I'm going to allow David <laughs> to tell you why it's awful, and then he's going to not interrupt me when I make a case for this movie. So, David, speaking as the majority here, why, why is American Ultra terrible? Uh, I'd much rather hear you argue uh, its merits and then try because I it's it seems so it's like asking somebody why the sky is blue. There's an answer, but it's just not especially. But it's I'm not as interesting as gonna, listening to someone argue that it's green. You know, I'm worried that I'm going to take the podium. You're going to come behind me with a knife. <laughs> oh, I mean, there, there's absolutely a guarantee that that's what's going to happen. But uh, but I mean, I will say that I thought this movie was. Uh, I, I think. Uh, you know, I don't think we really have to set it up. It's a movie where Jesse Eisenberg plays a sort of scraggly 20-something who gets Jason Bourne, essentially. It turns out that he has a secret past that he has forgotten or it's been brainwashed away from him where he used to be a sort of a CIA spy. He lives with his girlfriend, who is his Adventureland star, uh, or co-star, rather, uh, Kristen Stewart. And they they have a their chemistry... They never have anything remotely clever to say to one another or endearing or interesting, but they have an energy between them that I think uh, captures a lot of young, probably less attractive, at least on our side, American couples who are striving for Wait, less something. attractive? What are you talking about? Like the average American couple out there. Oh, I see. Um, who are uh, striving for something. Um, I, I think the, the movie, this is the only thing that gets right is that ad- attitude, but I think it's a really, really ugly film to look at, to experience. It's so shrill. There, the action scenes are hideous. 
The humor is incredibly flat. Topher Grace, it's just like I wanted to walk out as soon as he came on screen. Um, I hated, other than the the basic vibe between Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, I hated everything about this movie. And it's right up there with Vacation and wow. Hot Girls Wanted and Lava as the worst thing that I've seen in a movie screen uh, this year. Patches, go. Okay. Yes. Let, let me defend American Ultra. I will say that I, I, I'm a little bit in your corner in terms of the looks. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's not a, a well-shot movie, I suppose. The, the cinematography is dull, and it looks like it was all shot on the fly, and maybe this movie was too expensive for them to make. It looks uh, like it was shot in New Orleans for you know, the hills of the eastern seaboard. It do- I, I, I will <laughs> not give what it was. That. I will not give you that. It's, it's, a lot of it's set at night, and a lot of it is glowing and summery. It looks like a very humid movie, but I think it's also very appropriate to this story. And what you're honing in on with just Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart's relationship is what this whole movie is about and why it's so successful. This is one of the best, most fulfilling romances I've seen on screen in quite some time. And I, I actually kept thinking, not necessarily how, how um, relatable it was, but how much, if, if I had been like 20 years old and I hadn't seen that many like great movies, I'd seen whatever was playing at my multiplex. And I just remember coming to New York uh, as, as, a, as a new college student and just wanting to watch lots of different types of movies. And I think if I had seen this movie at an early age like that, that I would have, I would have really clung to it. That it was cutting. Th- it had all sorts of demented bullshit in it. And this is, you know, this movie was mit- written by Max Landis, who did Chronicle, and he's a loudmouth and he's a crazy asshole. Um, but you know, he he is idiosyncratic, and he'll do whatever he wants in a movie. And this movie can have insane action. It can have Walton Goggins lighting a car on fire and cackling like a bastard. It's it's terrifying. This felt and like I actually a movie- like the action. This bit. felt like a movie to you where someone's creativity was unchecked and not, you know. It, it absolutely it, does in a good way okay. for me. Um, and I, yes, okay. I like how zany it can get and I like <laughs> all the born action, the faux born action. But the beating heart here is throughout all this craziness, you still have something that's really palpable. Uh, this Chris and Stewart, Jesse Eisenberg relationship where they're just sitting in a field smoking pot and talking about how much they love each other, or how much they're failing each other and coming to terms with all of this. And yes, the revelations that come later are more tied to this CIA plot, but still it always comes back to how entranced I just, I each don't, are each other. I don't react well to the argument of I would have loved this when. It, it always feels really... I know you don't mean it this way, but like it, the way that it lands on me is sort of condescending. I'm legitimately enjoying your, it, but I'm also saying I find it transportive to a different time when, when you're figuring out relationships. Hope for better for those audiences. But um, I, I think you are on the moon with this movie. I, I really, really hated it. But I will say that uh, just talking about Max Landis and this so-called rant that he went on about I the don't know what that movie, is. Uh, he just lamented sort of he, trying to understand in public why the movie you know, bombed. Um, I, I think he sort of loses me from the very beginning where he says that it had the best marketing campaign or great marketing. I mean, the, the marketing for this movie was dreadful. It was completely well, we don't, invisible. We don't judge that, David. We're we don't know. I'm not, I'm not judging it as like a critical component of saying like this would have enhanced my enjoyment of this movie that I had to see anyway. But I am saying that uh, you have to look out at like what what like A24 is doing, for example, and then you compare it to this and it's just like you, you but can't. But there's no way to sell this – Romance. There's no way to sell a movie well, that has maybe. some big action in the side 
and and something small and intimate. See, I think its- that. See, you you're not like. Wait, I don't know on. the answer. I don't know the answer, but I think that saying that there's no way uh, there are people out there who would find a way. I just I don't buy that. I'm just saying there's a lot to sell in this movie, and I'm not going to judge the marketing. I'm talking about the movie itself. I'm just saying that what, these two characters there's there's an element of quirk that I was actually really into. There, uh, you know, Jesse Eisenberg is abs- you know he's he's an absent-minded guy not only is he a stoner but he has social issues and he's clinging to Kristen Stewart in both positive and negative ways and he turns to doodling which i just thought was really like very sweet and innocent but in a way that he needs to mature and Kristen Stewart's affection for him her her dedication to him i just think it's something you don't see in movies a lot someone a, a woman who can be smitten who can be in love and want to make sacrifices for that that's not necessarily something that a, a strong quote unquote woman might do i just thought there was so much going on in their relationship how much like crazy Topher grace bullshit was going on um was more of a joke it was more of a joke and and see how far you could zing from side to side in this crazy genre spectrum and always land back in the middle. So, If only you were desperate <laughs> for my validation, we could all agree. <laughs> I don't need garbage. to tell you. But I will. I, I do tell people listening to the show, it's much better than I think a lot of the critics are giving it credit for. So you don't, I don't need David's approval, but I do seek. I, I think it's much worse approval. than a lot of critics. I thought I was appalled that anyone was giving this movie. And people such – Bright and intelligent people, such as yourself and Amy Nicholson, were bending over backwards to treat this movie like it was something that it was not, is not, it was uh, tap, trying to be, but it doesn't come remotely. In your anyway. opinion. Well, American Ultra, it's out in theaters, and it will eventually be on a streaming service near you. When it is, watch it and tell us what you think. She'll be the death of me, at least we'll both be numb And she'll always get the best of me, the worst is yet to come But at least we'll both be beautiful and stay forever young This I know Alright, for this last segment, I just wanted to kind of riff on the summer movie season It's pretty much behind us, August is not looking too hot Besides American Ultra, obviously And The Man from Uncle And and Chinese Terminator Genesis Wait, really? Is is Terminator Genesis out in China and killing it? Oh yeah, yeah. it's like the uh, fourth yeah. highest grossing opening in China ever. So Terminator Gen Terminator Genesis two back on the table. How do you put two inside Genesis spelled the way it is? But there'll be there'll be a new uh, word after the Terminator colon that uh, let's hope it includes at least one two or Gen- two eyes. Tunisis. Tunis. Ooh, ooh, okay. Tunisis. That sounds fishy. Or like twir- um, twirled on fire, but uh, two oh, is capital. No. Then again, the, the Chinese audience is bolstered Pacific Rim, and Pacific Rim 2 might not happen. So yeah. I thought I Pacific hope. Rim 2 was about to film. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro is dropping projects to make that happen. So go uh, China. We'll talk, Ru- we'll ruin- talk after the show. Okay. They'll okay. ruin our stock market, but they'll uh, give us new Terminator movies. So. Well, there's plenty of people besides Guillermo del Toro who can make a Pacific Rim 2, and there'll be plenty of people who can make sequels to this summer's successful pictures as well, I would imagine. Um, now, David, before the show, we were talking about how you you boasted. You boasted like you knew what the box office for this summer was going to be all about, and you published it on Time Out, and uh, <laughs> that now, was we, not the, now we're going to grill you. <laughs> that was not you the boasted. tone of the piece. It was a uh, a fun bit of speculation to for this exact purpose, which was where I would – 
uh, and I am not somebody who claims to have any sort of expertise over the box office, uh, was going to guess. You what, called yourself Mr. Box Office and exactly. said, I know I everything. got a tattooed on my back, and <laughs> uh, now we are going to laugh at the hideous discrepancy between so did, my guesses. Did you do a top 10? Did you do I did a whole top 20. Oh, you did wow. a top 20. Well, let's just do your top. I'm curious what what made your top 10 and what the top 10 right now kind of looks like. And we'll talk about that. Uh, what right, was your you guys, Can one of you guys pull up the top 10 for the summer? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the official top 10 of 2015, All which right. unfortunately doesn't include some movies that might sneak in there. Like Straight Outta Compton is number 17 right mm-hmm. now with $110 million. I feel like that is just going to continue what, to rise through. What is the total for the number at number 10? Uh, ten is one hundred and sixty-four million dollars, oh. just inching yeah. out SpongeBob SquarePants, the movie. Oh wow! Straight out of Compton could get there. Oh yeah, I I would believe it. There's really especially nothing especially given how weak the next few weeks are. Um, yeah, I don't think Hitman Agent Forty Seven is going to be climbing back. I'm not yeah. sure. <laughs> it's making a splash. Uh, uh, I had Trainwreck at number ten with one hundred and fifty-four million dollars. $154 billion. <laughs> billion with a B. Uh, way off. Um, well, yeah, you, you were kind of Not that off. far off. I mean, Trainwreck was a relative success for Universal. It's just Universal had a lot other uh, movies that performed. Over- right. And I think any conversation about this will inevitably get to how oh, there's been a lot of talk about Universal's success and how they've relied. Uh, they've targeted underrepresented uh, groups and they've targeted women and diverse casts and stories of people of color and um, and they've had a lot of success in doing so. Yeah, Trainwreck is not even their number one female-driven comedy of the I'm, year. I'm not going to make fun of Trainwreck being on David's top ten unless Ted 2 is above it. Uh, yeah, I know. I definitely whiffed on Ted 2. We'll get there. Oh, <laughs> oh no. Uh, um, well, Trainwreck but, did not crack the top ten, but at number ten was Ant Man. Yeah, man. Yeah. So you know, there's the, my. Uh, this was not done out of wishful thinking. This was done my best guesses as to what would happen. Um, I am not. Uh, I am not Mr. unhappy that Stop Ted Two uh, did not make the top ten of the box office. <laughs> um, and my Wait. number nine was was Mad Max Fury Road at 157 million, which I think was actually pretty close. Yeah, they, it did 152 million, wow. which is pretty good for a movie that everyone thought was going to be a disaster. I was on a unnamed movie set. Uh, I just don't want to go there, but I was talking to publicists at a, a, a competing studio, and everyone was like, "Mad Max is going to be a total disaster. It hasn't come out for two years." Nicholas Hout was in the movie that I was on the set of, uh, just to feed you some information there. But these publicists, we were talking about Nicholas Hout, and he's like, "Yeah, don't talk to him about the movie. It might not come out. Like, who knows what's going to happen to this movie?" I, I mean, I've been told that on two, everyone away two Charlize Theron encounters. That's how long that the the movie has been like gestating. Yeah, everyone just thought it was going to be a complete disaster, and I feel like 157 million after all the horror story, or 150. Too is pretty damn. Do good. Wish, Wait, I, I do wish that he had done a little bit less speed uh, ranking, uh, ramping a little bit. You know, taking oh, you're adjusting the frame rate now. here, lowering it there. Uh, it's just something that grates a little bit. But yeah, great movie. Uh, that's not the point here. But uh, did it, what is the point? Is that my prediction was like Nostradamus? accurate so good for <laughs> me yet, i'm gonna take my wins yet, where I can get it. 14th of the summer so even though you're yeah. five million off yeah well and then at eight i had spy at 163 million i feel is, is spy an underperformer of the summer did we expect more from melissa mccarthy or is a hundred they made 110 million dollars and like that is great 
you know, but is it great for Melissa McCarthy? Tammy made $84 million. So yeah, I, I mean, expect to do double this. Well, the movie was budgeted, uh, at least publicly, at $65 million. Um, obviously, a lot of the money goes in uh, on top of that, goes into marketing. But um, it's never a bad thing to make almost double your budget, domestically at least. And Melissa McCarthy's fine because Ghostbusters is a minted hit already. So I don't think that her brand suffers at all from like a, a mild do think, win. Do you think but, Spy suffered from like spy fatigue? I heard someone throw that around in conversation the other no, day. No, that seems so silly. From, uh, that yeah. seems so silly given that Mad Ma- that uh, Mission Impossible came out after and did huge numbers. Right, and so did Uncle. Uncle probably suffered more from that. Then. Uncle, mm. yeah, because Spy was obviously such a different thing. Um, you know, it was. It I don't was know if people a, got what it was. Or, or I think you see Melissa McCarthy in, in the role, and you sort of as long, as, long as you doing. see Melissa McCarthy, you get it. Okay. Yeah, but it also did 124 million foreign, so you're talking about a 234 million worldwide gross. That is uh, nobody's getting fired over this. I don't think um, that's pretty good. That's pretty. Uh, pre- next on yours. Next on my list was uh, Ant Man at 172 million. Oh. Okay, not too far off. Yeah, but not too, too far. Could still get there. No yeah, wait, I was. Uh, what I, what I wanted Holy to ask about Ant Man was if if we think in the Marveldom, uh, if one hundred sixty four million dollars is a, is a solid take for that well, movie. I, I mean, think the real question here is if and Dave, maybe you can answer this: is if there's going to be an Ant Man two? Because I know he's going to be in Civil War, but like if there's not Ant Man two, that's a huge sign of no faith about the property. I would say that if there isn't an Ant Man two, it is solely because Spider Man it now exists as this giant X factor where they want to be able to cycle in as many Spider Man movies as they get in, while keeping you know their their properties at the forefront. And you can't have two in- insects. Well, I'm just more so in terms of Disney's <laughs> Spider not, versus the Ant. Disney's not going to let them have like five movies in their slate. I mean, I'm sure they'd love it, but uh, that's just that's <laughs> an insane bet that I don't. That no one. Is yeah, I don't think gonna there's going to be an Ant Man two anytime soon. I think uh, in that Which regard, is disappointing because Ant Man is, is a massive Good failure. Movie. I think Good that um, uh, you might see him tossed into something else that doesn't have his name on it with Wasp because I think they want to accelerate that, but I don't think uh, this Well, that's what I'm really looking enough. forward to. I mean, I thought Ant-Man, I really enjoyed Ant-Man, and it only built my excitement to see these characters do something else, you know, outside of their heist situation, outside of their kind of point A to point B. I but, think... Uh, Evangeline Lilly was actually really good, and she's kind of a non-presence for me in other movies. Yeah, I think so the I best thing they could ahead. do for Ant-Man is to, in addition to having him pop up in the background of these other, other Marvel movies, is to do like webisodes, like have like oh, I think these little inexpensive the adventures. I think if you're going to have two stars from the cinematic universe go to Netflix, which is something they haven't done, but they well, should. I don't know about that because once I mean I guess this sort of conflicts with what I was just saying about webisodes, but I also think the word Netflix. Once you have somebody get to that second tier or third tier, whatever you want to call Netflix, it's hard to bring them back up. But I understand they want to they want to destroy Although, those barriers. Yeah. Paul so Rudd's already him, been on a Netflix series, so he's kind of a well, yeah, and a great one. Lily isn't that far from Lost for it to be a ridiculous jump. <laughs> well, and their characters are actually involved with the Netflix characters in canon, so it'd be something they could actually do. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that that is it's more likely for them to pop up there than I would say Ant Man two. Mm, well, number six on my list here is where things get really embarrassing. Uh, although I'm certainly not alone in expecting jurassic world to underperform i had it at 188 million and the first sentence of my little write-up was yes the trailers are atrocious but don't underestimate 
the Jurassic Park faithful. I thought I was being generous with 180 million. <laughs> I said these spectacles are synonymous with summer, and even the lowly Jurassic Park three managed to pull in 181 million all the way back in 2001. Um, so, uh, A little off and I also there. said people will buy tickets to this movie without thinking twice. That's the American way. So. Now, so I, I've seen a video where a girl who must be, I don't know, 24 is in a in a car going home from Jurassic World and she's sobbing because it was such a religious experience for her. She was just like, the dinosaurs, the dinosaurs, are like, oh, the, the attacks of okay. the final Before the you finish sea this creature. Phrase, let's remember that you're the one that defends the Phantom Menace. Go on. <laughs> That's true. No, but where is the nostalgia? Like, what is what's what's bringing this girl to tears about Jurassic World? Have you met people who've seen this movie outside of our bubble who are just like flipping for it? I've met a few people who also just hate it. They're on my my side. I was very thrilled to hear that that, that it was not a good experience for them. Did a lot of people see this movie and walk out unhappy? Or the, I don't know the general sentiment. I, it has a very high Rotten Tomatoes score. I thought, I realized the other well, day. Well, that's that, this is one of the movies that's, that really that's, confounds Rotten Tomatoes. But sure. I remember the attitude on my subway ride home for the movie being a big sigh. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I don't know. The internet's a big place. You can find someone crying about anything. I mean, to speak for the the, the states, not New York. Uh, yes, please do. Our screening was like very energetic uh, coming out, and our light rail, which is the subway equivalent ride home, uh, very much like that. You know, didn't suck as much as an like all CGI <laughs> dinosaur Jurassic Park movie was supposed to suck. So maybe it's. I don't know. Maybe no, the benefit of low expectations. But I really think that uh, a lot of its success was due to um, the associations that are that are sort of ingrained into our culture now between what these massive dinosaurs and the Jurassic brand means to summer. I bet that if uh, – and obviously this is a loaded statement. There's a number of variables. But I think if you launched a Jurassic World in March or in uh, November – uh, November has become an increasingly popular blockbuster destination. It would do a fraction of the business that it did. I think oh, this is sense. summer. This okay. is this is summer. Well, I think <laughs> I would link this to Straight Outta Compton too. This seems like the right aged people, the right nostalgia, just the right moment. You know, Straight Outta Compton is is dad rap. It's it is youth for people who the 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 right demographic who's still going and paying for the movies. And I guess Jurassic World probably is too. You know, what? how old are people who were like 8, 9, 10, 11 in 1993? It's the key. It's the mm. key moment. It's so – the precision is kind of amazing and especially considering that how long did they work on this movie? This movie was coming out for like 10 years. They've been trying to make Jurassic World forever yeah. and it's pretty amazing. And I, can't, I don't know how they'll uh, splinter it off. Uh, you know, mega, mega franchise. Jurassic Dave. World anthologies directed yeah. by – Josh Trank, I don't know. And it's going to get uh, closer to the idea that this one started as, which is dinosaur-human hybrids. I, mean, I don't think we're going to get there in Jurassic World 2, but we'll definitely get there because well, dinosaurs. Should I buy JurassicWar.com? Will I be able to make a pretty penny if I do that now? Okay. I mean, you should just uh, buy it now so we have cool stuff to put there for the next 10 years. <laughs> That's your strategy. I know. I, I got to take a page out of your it's, book. It's worked for two X-Men movies. Um, and at number five, I had Mission Impossible Rogue Nation at 190 million, which I feel like is pretty accurate. It's climbing there. It'll it'll get there. I yeah, think. it'll get there. Um, and then we're still talking about movies that are going to gross less than Age of Ultron earned at its opening weekend. 
Um, and at number unfathomable. Yeah, at number four on my list, I had Ted Two, which is really just I'm I'm happy to be wrong here. This is, what happened uh, there? Uh, well, it was terrible. I also think that uh, a million ways to die in the West left a mark. I think that people who left a mark um, on, on the audience or left a mark on <laughs> Seth MacFarlane. I only think it left a mark on Seth MacFarlane. I think in his uh, underwear. Yeah, but I also think that like his brand hasn't. You know, there, a lot of blockbuster entertainment is, is comfort food, but at the same time, it needs to be – it's a beast that needs to be fed. It's sort of like uh, stoking the fires of an album of like uh, 1989, like having a new single every few months just to keep that fire going. And I think that uh, with Seth MacFarlane, there just hasn't been any Kindle for it, even though he had that movie, uh, Million Ways to Die in the West. I think that it was such a blip and, and had a really bad taste around it. Well, I guess he also that, got his Oscars in between Ted sure. and Ted 2, right? So that probably left people. That somewhere. didn't go well. So really, he only had his core audience for Ted 2, probably. Yeah, and uh, it did terribly. What, what's its number? Where is that? 81 million. Yeah, yeah. It did not so, get to the 100 million mark. That's, uh, there may not be a Ted 3. <laughs> Ironically, right above Paddington. Yeah, that's and... Really uh, Funnily enough, uh, Ted Ted Two, which is a terrible movie, has the I think I gave it, I was way too generous in my review, but it has uh, the best star- Jurassic Park related joke of of the summer. So there's nothing in Jurassic World is as funny. So as, when you rent it on Netflix, you'll be able to. Yeah, and now <laughs> we're getting that. into the real heavy hitters here, where I had Inside Out at 290 million. Wait, wait, no, wait. Number? We should. What as number, number are you three? At? Ooh, so close. No, no wait, wait. What did it, you have minions at? Well, we're, don't well, let's slow down. Uh, so well, I think Inside Out and Minions are. I tie them together, and they're and they are on this list too. Minions is number five right now at three hundred twenty million, and Inside Out is three hundred forty-two million. Oh, wow. Okay, so Inside, Inside Out, Out was is prevailing. Real, Inside Out was a real hit for Pixar. Uh, it had I had them at two ninety, which is already would have been a big hit for them, given that Brave, which was their last summer movie, uh, obviously not as well received although it did scream without lava which certainly couldn't have hurt uh had a, <laughs> yeah had inside out didn't lose any business from lava luckily <laughs> may have lost audience <laughs> i bet you it lost a few dollars there has to be someone out there who, who was wa- walked back just like wait a minute office. nope <laughs> no no who saw the movie and because a lot of these numbers i mean these, these are people who saw the movie two three four times uh who were disinclined to go back because it would mean suffering through the fucking holocaust of cinema that is lava. So <laughs> don't I go think, see Inside Out. You'll never yeah. make it through lava. You'll uh, yeah. before you get there. <laughs> um, and at number two, I had Minions at three hundred five million. So you're saying that Minions is is not grossed as much as Inside Out, but is uh, maybe on track to surpass it. I don't think it will. I really don't think it will. I mean, I, I think, uh, what is it? How many weeks has it been out? It came out July 10th, so it's now it's been, been over. Six, six weeks? No, that's only like two weeks after Inside Out. Yeah, no, these were close competitors the entire time, but I don't think it's going to escalate, and Inside Out is still playing in theaters, too. The question with Minions is, first of all, Minions cost an unconscionable amount of money. Well, like. Com- the marketing, it was everywhere. Oh, no, no, no. There was a opinion before on everything. The marketing, the, before the marketing, which must have been just staggering, uh, the cost to make this hideous fucking movie, I mean, just to look at just what they got as a result of the money they put into it is is a really 
it knocks that one stalk of hair that juts out of the top of your big yellow head uh, back. Don't um, <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, but minions worldwide, I don't have the number in front of me, but it must have been a fair bit high. I mean, did, did it climb anywhere near a billion? Oh, yeah, it's going it, to, it'll probably cross a billion worldwide. It's at, wait, is it? That's inside out. Hold on. I guess that's the beauty of Minions. You keep making those movies because they can yeah, play. No yeah, language. it's 990,244. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. Yeah, so it's going to make it. That'll pay for itself. Um, I, I remember, because I did a story about this, I remember the number on marketing, like the not even involving television ads, but just cross-promotion being... I, I, okay. I wanted to ask you before we move on about Inside Out, and you know, there's always this discussion come summertime about originality and how valuable it is and how important it is to these big movies and watching something original prevail. Do you think that Inside Out was success because it was something new, that it was something human, that it was something relatable, or is Pixar just such a strong brand? This was still a breakout hit compared to like Brave and some of their other recent movies. They haven't had one in a year or so. Or a I, year and I a half. think that the overwhelming um, the overwhelming factor here in the film success is Pixar is the brand. Um, I think that uh, that was far and away what did it. Parents know what to expect. They have the marketing push. I mean, it's, it's all there. Uh, I do think that the movie's rapturous reception definitely gave it a big push that Brave did not have. Um, and I think that uh, the fact Critical that Critical praise it means it, something. Who have thought? Yeah, and the fact... Well, the fact that, yeah, that it's... Uh, it, it seemed like a compelling concept. I mean, I think that there was that crossover sort of into the zeitgeist where where people, not only parents necessarily, but just moviegoers who were curious to see what this was uh, or wanted to check out Lava, you know, the greatest <laughs> offense to... I heard raves. I definitely think quality, um, quality was a big factor here, uh, but I still think the Pixar brand, especially with the how starved people were for it, it had been a long time, relative the rate at which they're turning out movies in the past uh, that all the elements were in place people love emotions they want to go to the movies and see emotions and then they're, they they want to see cars 3 so if i can get into theaters as quickly as possible uh, well and we'll there's you know that. the advantage that uh, inside out continues to be about the thing it promises to be about instead of changing right. one of its main characters into oh, a bear halfway through. Oh, oh, boy, are you sad that the, the recently released uh, Pixar calendar did not have a Brave 2 on it? Is this even more depressing than Ant-Man 2 not happening? No, I'm just so excited we're back <laughs> in like a Oh, wow, good. that I wanted... Pixar movie was good, and we've got the good dinosaur coming up, which may be good, but like... Oh, the years, good dinosaur looks so bad. It may, oh. look, may be good. Look, I'm, I'm just saying... As long as someone doesn't turn to a bear halfway through, I'm, I'm People doing were okay. weeping at D23, David. They wept. They wept. <laughs> yeah, I would have been weeping at D23, too. They all <laughs> Get me out of here. Give me the toys one, now. Yeah, the number one movie I had on my list this summer, uh, and I think this is probably what people would have chosen universally, uh, no pun intended, uh, was Avengers Age of Ultron, which had already made $217 million at the time that I wrote up this list after its opening weekend. Um, and what's funny about what I what I wrote in this little blurb here is that I said that it would only earn about $210 million more than any other blockbuster between now and Star Wars. Uh, and it didn't even turn out to be the highest grossing film of the summer. So... <laughs> But Fuck it made me. a shit ton of money, which still may be a disappointment in the eyes of some, but $457 million 
in the U.S. is not a bad, is not I a bad total. That, it's still working. I, and Dave, I mean, let me know what you think about this, but I think that Marvel's brand took a small but very real hit this summer. Um, I would say it's cinematic brand, yes. They definitely hit the boundaries of what the modern-day four-quadrant audience they're going for is willing to take in terms of plot and interconnectivity. Uh, where they really gained is that they, they really should do something to the ABC TV show or shows. There's now two, and there's going to be a third one. Um, to make those important or at least enjoyable on a week-to-week basis, but yes. Net- Netflix, Netflix <laughs> that was should be the, a goal. Netflix was the big win for Marvel, where it's going to be okay that they don't have a franchise that's going to top every year it comes out with Avengers. Well, that, I guess that's the problem with Avengers, and if maybe 457 million is a lukewarm number for this mega brand, um, it's I, I really like the movie too, and I, I'm anxious to rewatch it just to see if I maintain that that thrill. Um, but it doesn't up the ante like Avengers did, right? At least Avengers felt like a team up and Age of Ultron doesn't. It just feels like a colossal mess of stuff, of Where? mythology and action. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot's stuff. riding on the Avengers movies that isn't riding on the individual ones because it's like, this is what we got. Like, this is what it's all been for and this is what we're building towards. And I think there was a big feeling with Age of Ultron of like, that. that's it. That's what the supposed emotional investment is for i think i think the next avengers movie these double feature infinity war movies will amend that uh actually i sounds like my nightmare (laughs) no it uh, will be your nightmare that those are two different things they could both happen (laughs) no but i uh what i'm i just i i again and i'm saying this is someone who knows not a thing about what an infinity war is uh and i'm deeply afraid that it involves thanos in a very real capacity but i i have a hard time imagining how a two-part intergalactic opera with all these characters and two filmmakers who are like barely put on their pants in the morning compared to joss whedon who is not all that great to begin with um I, I I think it's a recipe for disaster, but we'll see. Well, the I mean, cold open of Infinity War Part One is them putting their pants on. So. Oh, good! They'll show me. St- it does one, take put time. Put on the pants. <laughs> that's yeah, also gonna... what uh, that's what all Phase Three movies have in common is it includes the scene of everybody putting on their pants. <laughs> it's going to be a real thrill. It's interesting um, to see that uh, Disney sort of uh, uh, like they they're hitting. They're taking stuff that they bought and being like, this is what's marketable about it and hitting it really hard and just executing just enough. It's not like it used to be where, you know, you got this feeling that Disney was, uh, you know, pulling magical Avengers hats and buying Star Wars because, you know, it's going to save it from George Lucas. Now I just sort of feel like, you know, Bob Iger is out there saying, like, your Star Wars numbers are already overestimating what we're actually assuming it's going to do. But they just they just want to be the steady heartbeat of like those things that we come back to every right. But they're every never summer. going to be the most interesting, and they're never going to be the most profitable. I mean, that's why Universal won. We go we kind of touched on this at the beginning of the segment that uh, you know Pitch Perfect Two is in the top ten of the year. Uh, David's favorite movie, one hundred eighty three <laughs> million dollars. That's a shit ton of money, and like that's that's a lot of investment in something they didn't care about the first time around. First time director Elizabeth Banks. Uh, 
throwing her that property, but uh, with with low risk, I suppose it probably yeah. didn't. Well, cost right more above that is 30. a live action Cinderella, and guess what? We got like a, another five live action movies that Disney's announced this year that are going to come through, starting with Through the Looking Glass, and you know, going through your Jungle Books and your Dumbo's and your everything. So they just want to be a consistent little heartbeat, right? Which- but it's like Cinderella stands apart from those plans, right? Through the Looking Glass and Jungle Book are not these classic princess movies these or these like strong female leads necessarily they're just regurgitating the old movies i think the live action beauty of the beast will end up being more successful than any of those other yeah that'll be very very successful i just i was thinking about this the other day i could not fathom for the life of me the point of making that movie other than to make money like what is the point well the point (laughs) is the same thing like do we love seeing stars dress up like Disney characters and have beautiful photographs shot of them by Annie Leibovitz? Like, well, well, yeah, what thing. was the point of Les Mis? There wasn't like. Well, and Les Mis was one of the worst movies of twenty. What, okay, maybe, it was maybe not maybe one of the, the worst movies. Les Mis was absolutely one of the worst movies. Oh, of fuck year. off! I guess absolutely. What, I guess and I've I'm, been on that train. I've been riding. What do they call the 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 what do they call like the cockpit of a train? The caboose, uh, the, the engine, no, the steam engine, is the the bat, whatever. I've been I've been fucking driving that train. Snowpiercer, two years. All right. <laughs> He's been in the front of the snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. He's the little the little child making oh. one repetitive motion. Oh, in that case, I'm sorry. <laughs> but like, Disney's going to be the industry standard in terms of they're probably going to have three movies in the top ten up in the next three years because they've engineered it that way. But like Patches was saying, I don't think they're they've engineered for excellence. But hopefully, what they'll do is allow for these sort of like counter programming things to peek through, like Universal yeah. this year. I mean, Dave, they hired Colin Trevorrow for Star Wars Episode Nine, which is such a kick in the sack to fans everywhere. We were talking about this on Twitter. Okay, that, you uh, tell me what you know about Guillermo del Toro, and I'll tell you what I think of this well, really well, happening with Colin Trevorrow. I'm I just saying that I think uh, they – I'm agreeing with you is what I'm doing, that they are not engineering for excellence. Uh, and I think that if I really gave a shit about Star Wars, I would be really disappointed to, to know that. Um, but – I'm well, not, it's also so. like when you see when you see the little movies at Universal pop, you wish other studios would take that chance, and I think other studios will have to. You know, they can't all be Disney; they that's, don't all have these giant pillars. Yeah, that's what's going to benefit us is because when you take chances, that's when you get excellence. Disney's just trying to not drop the ball, and that's you're never going to you know hit the stars doing that. Uh, well, that was the summer. Furious 7 is in the top three, too, which is not a summer movie. Cinderella no. wasn't a summer movie. Home, the animated uh, sci-fi movie that no one saw, still made $177 million, and that was not a summer movie. And Fifty Shades of Grey is in the top ten is not a summer movie. So only half of the top ten right now is stuff that came out the last summer. So good summer? Bad summer? Well, it I don't goes know. Back what's what's what the I, big, what bold statement? What I said statement? last year, which that the summer movie season is no longer a real thing, but... Uh, well, we still play the game because it's, right. it's still a certain type of movie. You I know? think that the only... I think that Jurassic, you know, one summer... What I, what I mentioned when I sort of wrote up that piece on the dissolved issue, rest in peace, was that um, the Transformers were the only movie that was coming out that summer that, that could not be released at any other time of the year. And this year, the version of that was Jurassic World. Um, so there are still summer movies... But the summer movie season, as we know it, is no longer a real thing. And I think that the box office numbers for this year reflect that. 
I'm gonna say good because I would give my left nut to get a Fury Road every summer, or just one movie of that quality that like is technically part of a franchise but doesn't feel like Ant Man part of the franchise. Like that's something I think is like really rare, and like I don't really know what that was last year. Like I really enjoyed Godzilla, but that was like barely May. That was like summer. Well, it was no, it was the same weekend that uh, that. What's it, fuck? Uh, Mad Max, Mad Max. Okay, so there yeah. you go. Like, the Godzilla, I guess, but, like, apparently that wasn't a big hit with everybody. I love, if you're going to have a summer movie, if you could have one big zeitgeist movie that, like, the majority of people can agree are good and talk about, that's what you really want. Like, you want to go to the right. bar after the movie and talk about Furiosa. You don't want to... Listen, everyone always accuses me of complaining all the time about movies on this podcast, and especially around this time of they're year. Right. And, and they're right. <laughs> However... Um, I think that – and people always have such a low bar for the summer, but we had Mad Max. We also had Magic Mike, which is a masterpiece, uh, and those are two big studio films that are both by Warner Brothers and were both phenomenal. Um, and then you also had a slew of great indies and foreign films. Yeah. You had a, The Pigeon, Sat on a Branch, Reflecting on Existence. You had Phoenix. You had Tangerine. You Silence. had The Mend. Which is a really great movie that we haven't talked about on the podcast. Uh, you know, there are so you have Mistress America. There are so many good movies out this summer. That some of those movies may not have made as much money as we would have liked, but I think that for the curious audience member out there, uh, this was a, a good summer at the movies. And yeah, I would agree for the exact same reason Dave cited. I mean, we just got a lot of good movies, and you wish you could get a Mad Max every year or a Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. Uh, uh, we should end this segment, but I do. I part of me, the hairs on the back of my neck stand up when anyone conflates the quality of Rogue Nation with that of. Fury I'm not. Rogue. I'm not putting. I'm not putting them on. They're not the exact same type of amazing in my mind. They. I, they. People fulfill, named they, Tom were strapped to moving vehicles. Yeah, it's true. They they fill different spots, you know. I was invested in Rogue Nation on a plot uh, in a thriller a, mode. A I like the ride. Took of, off her or, shoes. Yes, exactly. But I, you know, I look ahead to 2016, and which is helping me frame this summer and just how much greatness we got. Uh, I don't see a lot. I don't see our Mad Max next year, Dave. I don't know if anything comes to mind, but it's not uh, Independence Day resurgence. And uh, now you see me too. The second act. It's not exactly Jesus Christ. Screaming. <laughs> the Angry Birds movie. Uh, no, these are not even real place. things anymore. You're just trolling me. I, I can't. <laughs> hey, there's and, neighbors and, too. Sorority no. rights. Get ready for that. Um, End my life, please. <laughs> yeah, I don't know exactly what the Mad Max is going to be or what the saving grace will end up being next year, but we'll wait to find out. This year we had a good summer, and now we're on to uh, the fall. Scorch Trials! That does it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Are we, are we reviewing anything this week? It feels like August that's like stepping into a bear trap. Did you guys no, see think, any movies? I think we're on pause right now as we wait for the great movies to come to us and prepare for Toronto. Uh, there's a lot of little movies we uh, could talk about, but I think we're going to hold off. So if you want to know about them, you can probably message any of us on Twitter and ask us because we're seeing a lot of the solid little indie movies, but not the Sinister 2s, perhaps. I don't know. David, have you seen Sinister 2? No. 
Okay, that's what I thought. So right. there's your answer to that. We'll, yeah. we'll loop around to anything noteworthy, but this week, just some thought bubbling. So until then, people, tell you, tell them who you are. I'm Matt Patches. I am the senior writer of Esquire.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and I think I lost 80 pounds with the water weight during this podcast. Damn, it's hot. And uh, we have a website, fightingintheworm.com, and you can share episodes. You can comment on them. You can do pretty much anything. It's a magical website. Go there, fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I am the associate film editor of Time Out New York and the editor at large of Little White Lies magazine. You can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. And you can find all of us together sweating it out on Facebook, Fighting the Worm. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell my first name D-A-7-E. That's also my Twitter handle. You could find my writing at geek.com, latino-review.com, and forbes.com. And my podcasts at fightinginthewarroom.com, including one about comics, one about Storm of Spoilers. We're also there. You could uh, comment on our episodes, as Patches said, or find the rest of us on Twitter to ask us about movies. We're each individually where we told you, or as a group at FITWR. That's the acronym for the show name. Or you could answer this week's lightning round question, which was, in honor of Z for Zachariah, what's your favorite genre-tinged romance? And until next week... Be excellent to each other. And don't see lava? That's for the more that's the moral this week. Lava. Okay. Bill and Ted comes out when you least expect it.